Greetings once again, beloved, and this is another one of our sermons from this past summer, a shorter one, uh, but of the ones I have remaining, we have four. So after this one, uh, we will have three. This sermon's entitled Jesus at the Feast of Dedication, and if you're trying to listen to them all in order, it follows the message entitled Jesus' Life on Earth, Parables of the Mustard Seed, and the Leaven. Uh, and I don't think I say it nearly enough on here. Uh, thank you for listening. If you listen to these out of order, please don't stress. Um, the intention of the study is to put the events of the Lord's ministry in chronological order. Uh, but I think a lot of these lessons, um, I, I try to do all that I can to cite their location in those, uh, in his lifetime and in those events. Uh, so I pray that it won't be too awful confusing if you listen to them out of order. I did want to take a minute to let you know that we are on Facebook. Uh, if you want to look us up and uh, comment on anything there, uh, certainly you can like and do all those things too, although uh, the church doesn't really get anything out of that, except uh, it might draw some more attention to those who are local that might want to come and join us for services. But you can find us at Grace Missionary Baptist Church, space, um, hyphen, space, Tulsa, comma, OK for Oklahoma. Um, you certainly don't have to, but if you're looking to engage any of the membership here, uh, and it would certainly give all of us an opportunity to thank you for listening, uh, you are welcome to do so. If you ever have any questions or needs, or uh, if there is no local New Testament church in your area, uh, and you want uh, information or help on how to maybe start a mission, you can certainly email me, Pastor Joe GMBC at gmail.com. That middle section there, of course, is just the initials of the church, Grace Missionary Baptist Church, uh, and you can email me anytime. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 10, and we are going to, as I said, look at Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. John chapter 10, we're going to read verses 22 through 39. John chapter 10, verse 22, starts as follows. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication. And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? It's an interesting word for doubt here. Um, that seems to give implication that they are doubting life or everlasting life itself in tangent with his being or not being the Messiah as follows. Uh, so keep that in mind as we go. But it says here that how long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ. And this word simply means the Messiah or the anointed. Tell us plainly, they request. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So I've told you, and I've proven it by my works, by my fruit. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you for my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. 
if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe, and the Father is in me, that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, we've seen the Lord speak to this before. I think the last time uh, was just a few lessons earlier, uh, and, and the Lord responded with two witnesses being a requirement uh, for validation, and, and he has that. He has that proof. So with that in mind, now we're at the Feast of Dedication. He's facing that kind of criticism once again. And this Feast of Dedication, or Consecration in particular, uh, this was an annual feast celebrated for eight days, beginning on the 25th of Chislu, which is the middle of our December. It was instituted by Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. Uh, in memory of the cleansing of the temple from the pollution of Antich- uh, Antiochus, Antiochus sorry, Epiphanes. And, and we mentioned this a few lessons back. There's a lot more information uh, if you go back into the past episodes and listen to Jesus' Life on Earth introduction, uh, we spent a lot of time there on the inner biblical times between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, and there's way more on uh, Judas Maccabeus there. Uh, not so much that I will tell you that lesson, in my opinion, is very dry. Uh, it's 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 more facts than opinions or decipherings or anything of that nature. There's a lot of things, as we've talked about before, um, that weren't in the Old Testament, synagogues, Pharisees, Sadducees, that we use the introduction to kind of explain where it came from. But uh, very beneficial. I encourage the members here to uh, to hang on to a printout of that outline because there's there are times where these are the types of things we need to revisit just to remind ourselves, where did this come from? Now, this period of time, this Feast of Dedication or Consecration, is more commonly known as Hanukkah, uh, and and I'm certain most, uh, if not all, who are listening now have heard of that. The idea of consecration for the Lord's sake echoes throughout the New Testament. And I'll just give you a few examples here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9-13. through For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as if it were appointed to death, For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. No certain dwelling place. In labor, working with our hands, being reviled... We bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. And again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, 
but not destroyed. So again, the idea of consecration for the Lord's sake is something that's um, reiterated throughout Scripture. The, the, the word witness and martyr are hand in hand. The purpose of the journey is to get to Christ. And why would we suffer so uh, and why would we suffer so along the way? Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in, in, in its immediate consideration, but um, we did a demonstration here when we first preached this message with uh, some of the kids. We had them make paper airplanes and then go to the back of the church, and we're teaching on the necessity to suffer uh, for Christ's sake. And that's a hard concept. Uh, even now as I preach this, there's some personal things going on in our lives where we are suffering persecution. And what is the purpose behind such pain and such time and such trial when we serve a God who is bigger than all these things? So I had the kids make these paper airplanes. They stand at the back. And then we illustrated some sin. For some, uh, they were tied back by things they wouldn't let go of that God would had commanded for them to walk away from. So we punched a hole in the back of their plane and tied a string to it. And I had one of the adult members hold the string and the kid throw the plane as hard as they could toward the front of the church. The idea was that Jesus was at the front of the church uh, near our altar table or the pulpit and they were to try and get their plane as close to Jesus as they could. Naturally, as you might imagine, the plane with the string attached to it didn't do very well. Uh, I think another one, we, we took a pair of scissors and uh, we talked about how their, uh, their, their plane represented a life uh, riddled with sin, unrepentant sin, and we just cut the wings all to pieces. And the plane definitely went further than the previous one, uh, but, but it had no direction. It had no bearings. It couldn't make it to the front. It was as if it didn't know where the front even was anymore. And you can imagine, there was a couple other illustrations that we had in there too. Uh, one, I think we put a chip clip on that was uh, one weighted down uh, with, with, with some sin or another. But these planes wouldn't make it. So the last two, I had them take their plane in their hand. And we talked about the trials of life and just some, some basic illustrations of persecution and pressures in this life that had basically taken their plane and crumbled it up into a ball because uh, they, they were so worn down with the events of this life, but their goal was still to get to Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, these paper airplanes wadded up into a tight ball, representing the persecution of a lifetime of serving Christ. When they wound up and through those, they made it all the way to the front. So the first thing we want to consider here is the proofs that Christ never made them to doubt. He never made for them to doubt. That's the accusation in the beginning. How long dost thou make us to doubt? And we talked about that word a little bit there at the beginning of the message. So what are the proofs that Christ never made for them to doubt? The accusation of the Jews round about him was that he made for them to doubt. Remember that they demanded a plain answer because their accusation was he was the reason they were confused. And he offers several proofs to the contrary. The very basic proof, he says, is I told you, and ye believe not. Secondly, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So we have his, his words, and we have his actions. We have his, his living, his testimony, and we have his fruit. The issue for them is that they were not the elect of God. Even Jesus could not be such a convincing preacher that he would save those not chosen before the foundation of the world. Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. 
That's directly from our scripture. Our disturbed desire to have things be fair contradicts our own nature to have everything be self-serving. Even Jesus didn't break the will of the Father in this regard. And the second and final point of this outline is that we're given the proofs for the elect of God. Christ pointed out to them that they were not of his sheep and therefore could not believe. This is repeated elsewhere, and, and we'll get to that as we continue. But he here gives a beautiful description of his true sheep. They hear his voice, which means they hear his word and respond to it. The unsaved have little or no interest in the Bible. True sheep live in the word. They know Christ and are known. He says this in verse 14 and again in verse 21. So they will not follow a false shepherd. This is true of sheep in nature. Remember, we talked last lesson about the importance of understanding what a mustard seed actually looks like. How tiny is it really? Well, it's the same here. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Philip Keller. Uh, he was an actual shepherd. and uh, he, I think one of his more famous writings is A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. But he's got quite a few that are very easy and wonderful reads. And as a shepherd, he brings a lot of things out that I know I didn't know about sheep and shepherding and it really expounds Psalm 23 in particular, but just about every time we're being referenced as being sheep makes a whole lot more sense when you think about what an actual sheep is. Church members who run from one religious system to another one, uh, uh, or, or, or one cult to another, they're proving they are not true sheep. They're not satisfied by his word. They're not satisfied or, or they don't recognize that they are home with the voice of the Lord. The Lord's true sheep follow Christ. This speaks of obedience. No one has a right to claim to be one of, the Christ, one of Christ's sheep if he or she lives in willful, persistent, open disobedience and refuses to do something about it. Beloved, that's what repentance is, is the recognition that we are living in rebellion of God and it is the turning away from or turning around from those things that we know go against God and returning unto him. Think of the, the, the ten lepers. If you're caught up with listening to all these sermons, you know we just taught on the ten lepers here recently. Think of those ten lepers. Only one of them turned around and gave thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ for the physical healing that he gave them. Just as there are false shepherds, so there are goats who try to pass for sheep. And one day Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew seven twenty three. It's a very important verse. Most of us know it. Most of us are familiar with that phrase. But think about what he's saying here. He knows their work. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. But at the end, he recognizes and calls out their work. Their work is iniquity. We read in just a few lessons back that their father is the devil the chief of liars, a murderer since the beginning. The Christ sheep have eternal life and they are secure. This is the, the, the text we're using today is the best proof text that Christ does not lose those whom he saves. And I'm not getting into a, a war here over uh, other religious institutions and what is true and what is false. I believe that uh, we're better served by teaching what the dollar bill actually looks like instead of me showing you what every counterfeit dollar bill looks like. This is the real thing. Christ himself said, that he would never lose one. Verse 28 through 29 declare the wonderful security true believers have in Christ. What a wonderful thing 
to hear our Lord Jesus Christ say, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We have eternal life unconditionally. It is not dependent on our mood or his. We are in Christ's care and the Father's hand, a double assurance of eternal preservation for his sheep. We are the Father's gift to the Son. The Father will not take back a gift. Sheep are a beautiful illustration of Christians, beloved. Sheep are clean animals, and Christians have been cleansed from their sin. Sheep flock together, as true believers should as well. Sheep are harmless, and Christians should be blameless and harmless, according to the scriptures. Sheep are given to wandering, so are we. Sheep need a shepherd for protection, guidance, and food. We need Christ for spiritual protection, for spiritual guidance, and spiritual food. Sheep are useful and productive, and that is the commandment of our Father that Christians should be as well. Sheep were used for sacrifices, and Christians are willing to yield themselves for Christ as living sacrifices. Think of Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The Jews prove their unbelief by trying to kill Christ. We see a couple times in this text that they lift up stones, or even in their own hearts act motivated to take his life. They wanted to kill him, not for showing them good works, but because they could not have God's love. Jesus showed them that what needed to uh, showed them what needed to be believed in, but they could not believe. By faith, those that did follow Jesus stepped through the door. Remember, we talked about that a few lessons back as well. He is the door that is uh, guarding the open place in the pen in which the sheep have been led. He is the door out of the Jewish religious fold and into the liberty and eternal life Christ alone can give. They had to walk away from old comforts and habits, traditions of men and self. At this feast of dedication, consecration, Jesus truly spoke to them of their need to do exactly that and follow him. It's one of the more wonderful things about scripture, especially when looking at the Lord's ministry, is how many times the Jews in particular are exactly where they need to be to receive the lesson he is giving. He's using elements of, of this feast. We'll see it over the next couple of lessons. There's different things that he pulls in from the feast. Uh, even the candelabras, the lights, uh, if you will, they have meaning. When he says, I am the light of the world, he uh, most likely is pointing at these things that at that point would have been coming down from this exact feast. He's making reference to those things that I'm sure at that point, like us today, are just traditions to them that they don't understand the meaning of. And he's giving them the meaning. It's interesting. What if we considered our lives as that paper airplane uh, that those children were holding when we originally taught this lesson? What if we considered the beatings that we've taken, the pain that we've experienced, the loved ones that maybe have been amputated from our lives, whose testimonies conflicted with that of our own what if we actually consider that what the Lord's been doing all along has been grooming us for a great purpose? What is that purpose, beloved? 
What does persecution do to your plane? How much closer to Christ do we get when we have suffered at the hands of this world for his name, for his sake, that the gospel might be preached? John 16, verses 31 through 33 is my absolute favorite text of the Bible. And it says, Do ye now believe? That's Jesus saying this. He says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I can't imagine our Savior saying that without without smiling. Without a, a glimmer in his eye that he is indeed the one that we are most familiar with that great comfort in all the universe for the suffering and hurting souls. Will you live such a life of consecration for Jesus? Will you find in yourself those things that must be repented of and come clean before the Lord Jesus today? Will you believe on him? Will you receive the blessings of the Lord? He's not knocking. He's not asking. He's not waiting. None of that that silliness. But, beloved, we can do a lot to harden our own hearts. I don't know where you're at while you're listening to this. I don't know what you're going through. But maybe maybe you're alone in the car. Maybe you're alone in your study. Ask yourself, have you ever truly surrendered? There's a book out there by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. And we were doing a, a men's study quite a few years ago now. Uh... And about halfway through that men's study, I surrendered to preach. Because I had realized that I was saved, I knew that. But I was living a, a, a Christian life as a fan. It's not what Christ is looking for. He doesn't need people on the sidelines chanting. The last time people were on the sidelines chanting, they were chanting, crucify him, crucify him. What he's looking for is the one who will answer the question, who will go for me? Beloved, is that you?